Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey guys, this is Jenny Allen and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. So God is good to bring people in our life right when we need them. And Kurt Thompson is one of those people for me. He has helped me see some things that I didn't even see or even know I needed to see in my life. And so I'm excited for you to get to meet Kurt. Kurt is the author of several books, but more than anything, he's a counselor. And he's spent his life helping people understand God better, understanding themselves better, and the freedom that God has for them. So you're going to love this episode. Meet my friend, Kurt Thompson. English word atonement comes from at one meant this notion that on Good Friday, God is as at one with us as he possibly could be stripped naked and put to death on a cross. Mm. And the beautiful thing about it is God comes and he joins us in that space. And the thing is like, that's where we, where most of us as humans remain. We remain dead on the cross on Good Friday. That's where we end up being. But thanks be to God, that's not where God leaves us. And that's not where God leaves Jesus. On Easter, something beyond our imagination happens because God takes Jesus, raises him, and we being in him are also raised. And this is then what we do when we come to find our friends and neighbors and enemies in their shame and say, I will not leave you alone with this. I'm going to be present with you. I will not leave the room. You can't make me leave, despite the fact that you're showing me all the stuff about you that you hate the most. You can't make me leave. This is the biblical narrative. This is what good news is largely about. And that whole sense of shame that keeps us from wanting to be open to people finding us is primarily an affective experience before it is a thing that we think it is a thing that we feel and it is a thing that eventually has huge implications on what we think and what we do neurophysiologically in response to it now and i'm thinking of how it flushes out my life and one of the messages which you talk a lot about you shared somewhere that one of yours was i am all alone and then mine is i am nothing like I saw the Avenger movie, most recent one at the end where the superheroes die in the end, but how they die is they literally evaporate. Weeks after that, I had the worst dreams and couldn't sleep. And I was like, what is that? But it's so hit to my lie that it's just that I'm vapor, that there's nothing solid right. to me in my life, right? That's right. So that's a message that somewhere I picked up that I didn't realize was like under every relationship and everything in our life. So we pick up these messages and I think about what you're saying about atonement and I think about how that applies. It's a shame statement, right? It's a, right. it's a lie. Well, I think, you know, again, I, I am so like, I, I think the biblical narrative, like the, 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 the Bible as literature is absolutely stunning. 
like when you read like it like like the writer of Genesis or the writers, however many there were, like are just brilliant in that they show and they don't tell. And the opening pages of Genesis chapter three coming out of Genesis chapter two, this notion that evil, what I tell people, evil is the second smartest force on the planet. And evil starts this conversation with the woman first by making sure it's with the woman. It's not directed at the woman and the man as a one flesh union. It does not direct it at the woman and the man and say, hey, wait, let's wait till God comes walking along in the cool of the day later today so I can talk to the three of you together. At the very beginning, there is a sense like this conversation is intended to isolate her. And that's one of Shame's primary neurophysiologic features. We feel isolated, alone. And if I am alone in the privacy of my own mind, I'm then left alone to have to figure out the meaning of the story that I'm told by anybody. And when left alone, when I hear this story from the Satan that says, God doesn't really want you becoming like him after all. If you eat of that fruit, he knows that you'll be like him. That felt like it's not hard for me to make the jump of interpreting like if he doesn't want me to be like him, like he does not want me, like I am not wantable. Again, the writers are brilliant. They don't like spell all this out in detail because this is how evil works. Evil doesn't come out and give us all this in explicit, logical, linear thought aggregates. No. He gives the woman just a little bit of information and then lets her brain go on the fly. He doesn't say to her, for instance, you want to see if I'm right? Go check this out with God. Let's get somebody else in here in the conversation. No. In the privacy and isolation of her own mind, she's left to have to figure this out on her own. So we see where even this narrative, this story that the devil tells is having indirect impact. And this is how shame works in this way in which I sense, I first sense things because it is first a neurophysiological thing, right? We can, in, children can sense this as early as 15 to 18 months of age, the turning away of the eye, the downcast gaze, the turning away of the shoulders, all this, just like dogs. We don't need our prefrontal cortex. We do not need our thinking brain to experience shame. So I sense it. And then at some point I have to make sense of it. And if I grew up in a house where every time I bring my best work to my dad or my mom, they say, I know it's a 92%, but where's the other 8%? At some point, that felt sense is going to have to be translated by me into a message, as you so rightly put. It's some message that says, I'm not working hard enough. I'm not a smart enough person. I'm not a good enough student. I'm not enough in some way. And we have an infinite array of ways in which this same message of, I'm only vapor. I mean nothing. I am valueless. I am unwantable. We have a hundred thousand ways of sending those messages to ourselves. But of course, we have to survive in the world. And so we come up with coping strategies for this. So if I'm the kid who believes I'm not smart enough, I'm just going to work harder as a way to cope, as a way to diffuse and defend against the intensity of what I feel. And, you know, if I work hard enough, I get enough accolades to keep me along the way, which helps me not pay attention to my emotion of shame, which evil is just as happy that I don't. 
because it allows that emotion to kind of remain as a common undercurrent. Mm. And that's what I see everywhere. And that's what my heart breaks for. Yeah. And so what's the hope? I mean, what is the hope? Well, I, I, you know, this is where I say like the gospel, you know, the, the good news that uh, with the resurrection, I love, you know, N.T. writes reflections on this, that the good news is the declaration that with God, in, in raising Jesus from the dead, God has declared that Jesus is king and that all evil is in the process of being dismantled. And from my perspective, evil's, one of evil's primary methodologies of accessing people's hearts and minds, and that's through this implementation of shame. And so God coming to us is the model by which we then go to others, which is why we want to be in communities where I would say communities in which we are able to be vulnerable. This is that's why we say, you know, one of the antidotes for shame necessarily is the activity of vulnerability, the activity of being fully true, telling the whole truth about what I sense and image and feel and think and the story I've made up in my head, which is why when we talk about confession, confession is not just an act in which I dictate to people a list of my sins. Confession is my embodied action of revealing the whole truth of who I am in the presence of someone else who when I see them receiving the whole of me, the part about me that longs and dreams and desires, as well as the parts about me that I hate and that are dark and black and awful, when I see them receiving that, I see in their face the message, I still want to be in the room with you, Kurt. You can't make me leave. In that way, my confession is an opportunity for me to not be alone. It is the gospel coming to me. So when Paul says, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The word your, implying both your singular body, your body, Jenny, my body, your husband's, my wife's, but also your plural, your body of believers is the temple. It is in this space where, as the psalmist in Psalm 27 writes, I long to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon his beauty. To gaze upon beauty is to gaze upon each other because we are the temple. And to gaze means we got to spend time looking. But if I spend enough time with you, if you spend enough time with me, there are going to be parts of me that you're going to see that I'm going to worry about you seeing. If you are, if you gaze at me long enough, at some point, you're going to find the part about me that I'm sure that when you see it, you're going to leave. And this is what God does not do. God does not leave. In our communities of these outposts of goodness and beauty that we are trying to, we want to create in order for us to dismantle shame in real embodied storytelling fashion, it not only, it look, it's not just a matter of like, well, when I tell my story, I feel better. It's that I also have the embodied experience of being better and take that remembered experience with me then into the other parts of my life where I am recommissioned to make things, new relationships, new software, new furniture, new missions, new ministries, new everything that is a direct continuation of the new creation that is born at the resurrection 
such that the healing of shame is not just about us being relieved of the dark side of sin. It's not just about us feeling better as people. It is about us being recommissioned to make the things that God has planned for us to make from before the foundation of the world. I'm going to say a few phrases to you that are scriptural, and I want to know, just hear you unpack them. You can approach it from a scientific way, or you can approach it from a theological, which is one of my favorite things about you, Kurt, that you usually do both somehow. Um, number one is renew your mind. I, you know, I don't, there are lots of phrases uh, that we read about in the epistles that are just mind-blowing in their beauty. And this would be one of those, right? This notion of, therefore, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, such that you may know what the will of God is. And I think about this notion that, you know, in the world of uh, neuroscience, we're learning all about neuroplasticity, the capacity of the brain's neurons, the brain cells that 100 billion of them that are in our head, these cells have the capacity to make new cells and to make new connections. These were things that 30 years ago when I was in medical school, we didn't really believe that they could do it. But this sense that when I see the light of Christ in someone else's eyes in such a way that my shame is transformed, that very act literally is going to turn on new neural network connections within my brain connecting different parts of my brain's activity that were not connected before, but explicitly because I have been connected relationally to that other person. Not because I just read this in a magazine, but because the literal impact of the other person's embodied presence, their right hemisphere of their brain turning on parts of the right hemisphere of my brain that otherwise would not be turned on if unless I were in the room with that person. This is what we say renewing the mind really looks like, that it's not just a metaphor. It's not just an abstract idea. It is real regeneration in real time and space. And someone could say, well, Kurt, you don't you don't need the gospel for that. Like people could like have that kind of experience who aren't believers. They might not even know about Jesus. They can, and, and I was like, of course they could. But it doesn't make it any less true in recognizing that I would want to say like, well, of course they would, because this is how the God of the Bible has made us. And this is what the resurrection points to. And this is how what we're learning in neuroscience reflects the reality and profundity of the resurrection itself. When I post something, Kurt, on community or friendship, the, the internet, I mean, it's just, it's kind of break, breaks your heart, but I can't tell you the number of replies I get that's just vulnerable and saying, how? Like, I don't know how to find it. Yep, right. And what do you think that barrier is? Why, why is it getting so difficult? Well, I mean, here's the thing. I believe that there is not just one single answer to that, but um, just imagine this little thought experiment, if you will, for a moment. If we were to say, okay, starting January 1, we're going to turn off all of our social media accounts and we're not going to go back to them for three years at the most. It would suddenly put us in a position in which I would have far less technological um, mechanisms at my disposal 
to cope with my distress that I feel internally. Mm. I'm going to be much more likely to have to turn toward a real, live, embodied person. As long as I have something easily accessible to me to help me cope with and diffuse my inner distress, I will much more likely turn to that. And so, as, as we say, when the brain is left to its own devices, when I am by myself, I will do on my own whatever is most expeditious, whatever is, is the fastest to reduce any kind of emotional distress that I have. For me to reduce emotional distress by picking up the phone and calling you and saying, hey, could we have a conversation because I'm not in a very good place? That takes far more energy, far more vulnerability than it takes for me to simply distract myself by picking up my phone and looking to see who's texted me, looking to see, like, like checking my Facebook account. And so I have lots of things at my disposal that actually facilitate and encourage my not being in community. Not because I'm waking up in the morning and saying to myself, I don't want to be in community. It's just that behaviorally, that's exactly what I do. I behaviorally exit. I practice exiting community by picking up my cell phone. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push you and we'll, we'll finish up here in just a few more questions, but I really want you to give your tightest, shortest answer to it. And part of it is not just time. I just want to see, are there answers to these questions? The first question is how do people change? People change by being willing to vulnerably allow themselves to be known comprehensively over time by God and by others, stepping into the, uh, the invitation of the next courageous thing that God calls them to do as they are freed from the shame that has kept them in their negative behavioral cycles in the first place. And so those negative cycles can be broken. Oh, they're being daily broken. Yeah. I mean, they, and when I say broken, we say like, it's kind of like rehab, right? I mean, following Jesus is is more like rehabbing from from alcoholism. It's not like having my appendix taken out. Like I have my appendix taken out and it's done. No, it's more like rehab. It's it's a long it's a long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson wrote. But there are moments that everything shifts. That we long to change, but we worry sometimes that we won't, and that's shame talking. Shame's yeah. going to say like shame is like look, it is never going to leave you alone. Like look, do you think that evil like is going to like, look, look, you're doing this podcast. It's with me, but it's with, with, with whoever you're like, Jenny, like you're doing really, really good work. Do you think evil's going to leave that alone? No. Evil does its best work in the middle of good work being done. It's not going to show up at your house at three o'clock on a Thursday afternoon and say, hey, let's go rob a bank. No, it's going to wait for you to start a next really good ministry thing. And then it's going to have you worry that it's not going to be done well enough. Right. We're going to start these processes. Then we're going to worry that we're not making change. Can we change? Well, I mean, it says that we can, but we worry that we won't because perhaps we're not enough. I mean, it's entirely possible that Jesus, if we were to ask him, is change really possible? He might say, like, like, like John the Baptist, are you the one for whom we've been waiting? Jesus doesn't give him an answer that's straightforward like we would like. He doesn't say, yes, I am. He says, tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, and the good news is preached to the poor. 
and blessed are those who don't stumble over me. It's really hard. Like, and I'm thinking like, I'm thinking John the Baptist, like he's in prison. He's about to have his head taken off his body. And like, if I'm him, like I would be asking the same question. I am asking this. Like I'm asking the question. You're asking the question. We all want to know. And all Jesus says to us is, what do you see? What do you feel? What do you sense when I'm with you? Live into that. Don't let shame let you worry. I'm not leaving the room. I won't leave you. Yeah, I mean, I think the fear is the hopelessness, right? Like the fear. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and, and let me assure you, I mean, I write about this stuff. I work with patients on this stuff. And, you know, half the time when patients don't do the work I want them to do, I'm upset with them because the reality is I need them to do the work because I don't want to be alone in the work that I'm trying to do because I'm not very good at it either. It's hard to do. Like Jesus said so. Narrow is the road, and it is a hard one. Now, it's not only hard, right? There is a burden that is light and a yoke that is easy, and we're going to be with someone who is every day telling us, like, you can't make me leave. This is really hard. Let's keep going. This is really hard. Let's keep going. Because when I look at you, I see someone that just makes me want to go have a party. And that's what we are being called to pay attention to when our shame attendant wants to draw our attention away to other stuff, reminding us that, like, you don't matter. You're vapor. You're invisible. Mm-hmm. You're nothing. Just, yeah, I mean, I think I want there to be. I mean, it's interesting. I would even push you to, like, what's the short answer? Because I want there to be. I want there to be, right? right. I want it to be easier. Right. I want to be clear. Well, and all you have to do is look at, like, the reality that the world mm-hmm. has been around for a long time. Uh, God is not providing us a short answer. Mm-hmm. God is providing us a very, very lengthy answer. Like it's taking a long time for Jesus to get here, for his appearance. And I would say uh, to me, like, and, and of course, I don't like that. I, I, you know, because I'm sick of living with the parts of me that I'm sick of living with. And I wish that he could come in and just like take care of this. Give me the answer that these things too, that these things too can change. And uh, the answer I get is, well, let's go live another day and see how it goes. And I'm like, that's not good enough for me because uh, I'm because shame keeps talking to me. But there is this sense in which uh, and the biblical narrative, I think, paints this so beautifully that part of why it is that it's taking so long is because Jesus is so serious about not leaving any stone unturned in our life before it's healed. He's not willing to twist our arms. He so wants us to trust that he is as crazy about us as he says he is. And there is a part of me that believes it. But like the father at the end of Mark 9, right, my my daily words are like, I believe, help thou my unbelief, because I got a lot of that. So I got to be with people on a regular basis who are believing in me because there's a lot of me that doesn't believe in me. So we'll close here, but I I want to take you back to that weekend and kind of remind you what broke me. So my arms are crossed the weekend over. I had a great time. I learned a lot, but my emotions were very guarded. Mm. And then they weren't. And it was in the last couple hours. And darn it, Kurt, it's exactly what you were saying. Mm. Which I actually even teased you about. Mm. That are, <laughs> that are, you remember that? That are, <laughs> could um 
could break something down for us, that beauty could break something down. And Micah May read a poem about her Down syndrome son, and and it was a poem. It was yep. an allegory. And I remember. I mean, I lost it because, of course, I've got suffering in my life. I've got pain. I've got shame. All of it is sitting right there, not even that far under the surface. But talk just about why that moment matters. Like, if you were writing about the girl at the ranch retreat, like, what would you say about her and why that matters for her? Why is it important? Why, why well, would that make you happy? Well, I would say, uh, I mean, this is, this is a partial answer, but I, I would say that, you know, we were, uh, again, back to that notion that we were made, at least it, it seems to me, that God's vision for us was that we were made to make things, to live in, in, in and as God's image includes our intended purpose to create goodness and beauty all around us. And we can't make goodness and beauty in a full-throated way. We can't make it with all of who we are. We can't love the Lord our God or the others around us or those things that we are called to make with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, if we are working so hard to contain a great deal of it behind this wall of, I will not have my wall breached. And this is the beauty about beauty, right? I mean, the poem that Micah read, it wasn't just the abstract content of the subject that she was talking about logical linear thought processes it was that it was a poem it was that it was read rhythmically there was beauty in the very way in which she was writing and speaking and when you couple all of that with the content of what the words point to that circumvents that logical linear wall that our mind erects that says you will not have access to me. It circumvents that and it gets to our right hemisphere, the part of us that is undefended, but so longs to not have to defend itself in the first place, that so desperately wants to be seen, to be known, that so desperately wants to say, like Hagar said in the desert to the angel of the Lord, behold the God who sees me. In my best, worst moments, I want to be seen and know that you still want to stay in the room. I want to know that my suffering matters to you because I was made to not live with my suffering or my joy by myself. And evil will do everything it can to rob us of that experience. And so what did I want for the girl that weekend? I wanted her to be unafraid to be wanted. I wanted her to be expectant and open to what God had placed and had envisioned for her to make in a new way that she didn't know she didn't know until she allows herself to be open, until she allows her suffering and shame and grief to be accessed by a community that wants to be in her room. That's what I got. That's really good. Okay. Um, I remember one of the things you said that was so, that really has changed the way I think was just about the Navy SEALs and how, you know, I kind of justified, like I've compartmentalized everything. And you said, well, those people, you know, pull over at a stop sign and like, 
pull out a gun and <laughs> and shoot somebody like in mm-hmm. civilian life if you keep li- living that way and you don't turn that off and and I think I needed that I think I had that had been a coping strategy for a long time and just just that you know that all of these th- I think I, I didn't believe until that weekend that that different um, I know this is crazy right but it's it's just it's something not, picked up it's not crazy that it's all not, it's not crazy couldn't be there together like that that either I was in a season of grief or a season of anger or a season of joy, but I couldn't be, I, I know that's crazy, really, but I believe that. Okay, I think okay, I, okay wait, 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 seriously, wait. What, what prompts you to say, I know that's crazy? Because it's so obviously untrue. It's so obviously untrue. Wait, but wait a minute. Jenny, you didn't hold a different position before that weekend because you were stupid. Right. It's not because there were things that were obviously untrue and you were just not believing them. It is because we, like, again, this whole thing about emotion where we started, emotion is a significant part of how we regulate even the things that we think about and, th- and how we understand things to be true. Mm-hmm. Right? Einstein, I mean, was famous for describing how his, his theories, they didn't come to him as logical math processes. They came to him as pictures and images and felt sensations. And then he had to do the math to make it all make sense. Long before he made sense of relativity, he sensed it. And so we have our own relational stories that cause us to create a matrix of the world And we tell a narrative such that things have to fit certain categories and be quote unquote true as a way for us to be okay in the world, as a way for us to literally feel, literally emotionally and in our bodies, feel like we are okay. It is only when we start to encounter other things that open doors into areas that we want to be even more true. Like it's a felt sense of like, gosh, could I give up? Would I be willing to give up all this work and energy that I'm burning to hold on to this posture in order for me to be safe? Am I willing to let go of that, to take the risk of discovering that something else might be even more true? And I would suggest that in that moment, listening to Micah's poem, it was every bit as much an act of willful courage on your part to let go, to some degree, at least maybe a significant degree, a way of being, taking the risk that there is a different way of being that is coming to find you, and that when it does, and when you jump, the net will catch you. And this is what faith in Jesus is about, right? We, we don't know for certain anything. Because the minute that I can know that I know that I know for certain, certain things, I don't need you. I don't have to trust. I don't have to depend upon another human being, least of all God. And so God comes to these places and invites us to take the risk. And so her poem circumvented your left brain and offered you the opportunity to take the risk. Look, you could have gotten up and walked out of the room, but you didn't. You would have made me come back and ask me, what are you feeling? 
<laughs> that's not walking out. <laughs> no, what's so weird is I am vulnerable. Like I usually show up with like my whole heart. I'm a wholehearted person, but I think I just had gotten so tired of sadness. I'd gotten so tired of hard and difficult. And I just, and I think I just, I just didn't want to, I don't know. I mean, that mentally, that's what I think happened. I don't know. As I've, I've, as I've said in other places, um, vulnerability or to be vulnerable is not something that we choose to be or choose not to be. Mm. It is something that we are. Mm. We are vulnerable creatures, right? Nobody gets out alive. We are vulnerable creatures, and we know that because we put clothes on. No other animal does this. We build houses. Most other animals don't do that. It's not do we choose to be or not be. It is to what degree am I going to live into my vulnerability? Mm. That's the question. So all that to say, it's not, it, it, it's, it's not to say that you, before this, weren't vulnerable. It's really a question of in what ways are you choosing to live fully into what you have been created to be, including allowing for and paying attention to and accessing those parts of your heart where you carry the sadness so that you don't have to carry the sadness by yourself. To be vulnerable with someone else means you're going to allow someone else to carry your sadness with them. They're going to, they're like, they're like the two, like the two or the three, or, or in that case, like the nine of us are going to carry your sadness together. And when we have the experience of being, of, of feeling felt, when we feel felt by another, our mind knows it is not alone in the world. And that's what, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not just like, those words are not just like, ah, I notice he's kind of by himself. I'm just, it's not, that's not good. Let's just do, no, it is a statement that speaks to the very essence of the molecular makeup of the universe. And on that weekend, you made a choice to allow yourself to be less alone. And it was like, it was an, it's, it, it, it was an amazing thing. And, so, and, 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 and I want to emphasize, I, I, I want to say like, it's not easy to do. I want to say to you, that like I like I mean look I that weekend at the end of the weekend like I'd known you for two two and a half days right but I could have said to you and I could say to you now like oh my gosh like I'm so stinking proud of you mm-hmm. like it's it's impressive because it's not easy to do well and I think that's really helpful and important to say because I don't think that's said enough because I I mean not not the proud of you part I'll take that too but the the part about how hard it is to do because I don't know that I don't know that we really come to terms with that. And, and so when something's uncomfortable, we just don't do it. We don't realize that, Oh no, this isn't, this is something to overcome, right? Like this is something everyone feels resistance toward. That's right. Okay. In our lives, not believing the lies, believing the truth. I have a choice to blank. This is the best. I don't know the best. This is this is what I have at the moment. I would say that I uh, let, let me just say this in 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 as a backdrop, right? In Romans eight, Paul writes about how the mind that is on the spirit is life, but the mind that is on the flesh is death. And uh, of course, he's he's not talking about spirit and flesh, meaning 
and non-material material worlds, right? He's talking about the spirit represents the the material and non-material world that is the of the kingdom of God, and the flesh represents the material and non-material world that is the kingdom of darkness. The mind that is on the spirit is life, and I would say uh, the one thing I want to do is, as I am able, be attentive in each moment to the delight and presence of God where I am in that moment, to choose to pay attention to that and allow that to inform whatever is happening in this moment and choose not to pay attention to whatever message of shame that will necessarily always be in competition with my desire to pay attention to God's delight. I think everything else becomes a byproduct of my choice to pay attention to one or the other of those two things. Mic drop. Dang, that was good. And that gives me a lot of hope because I'm like, okay, because I'm sitting there going, gosh, what do, what do I even have to give? You know, I mean, I know it's a shame message right now. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yes, you're right. <laughs> author, like sitting down to give something right outside of biblical truth where you're saying, I want to expand on this or I want to. And it's like, oh, I can be, <laughs> this is what I'm good at. I can be a good reminder. Like I can be, I could remind them that God, that, that paying attention to God is worth it. That, you know, like I could be a cheerleader in that way, you know, like that's, that actually. I, I, yeah. But I want to remind you of something. And we, we, when I do trainings with, with clinicians, one of the things, and, and this is really hard for us in our world where, you know, we go to conferences and, you know, we go for this quote unquote experience and we go to receive downloadable information about our lives and our faith and our experience and so forth and so on. And we think that we'll just take that and go with that. But I want to say, but I, and I tell this to clinicians all the time because patients come to see them and the clinicians are there to get trained by me because they want the information that I give them because they think they can take that information and take that to their patients and their patients can come to therapy and take the information home with them. And the information is the most important thing. And I tell them at the end of the day, your patients are primarily not coming for your information. They're coming for you. The gospel is you. You are the gospel. Jenny Allen, like, you are the gospel. The words that you use to tell the truth that represents everything that your living, breathing, pulsating self is about are the extra additives that we use to describe what we are already experiencing. When you wonder, what do I have to give? Like, my friend, you're already giving it. It's in your voice. It's in your eye gaze. It's in your gestures. Is There's a sense that in all my fill in the blanks and in all my like easy answers, it's like, it's him. Like almost everyone where I try to press you on, <laughs> like, give, me, give me the answer. It was like, well, it's, it's God. Like it's, it's what he did. It's who he is. It's who he is through you. It's who he is through the person on the other side of, you know, the room from you, it's, it's, uh, yeah. So I just, I love how you shape the way I see him and, mm. and his delight in me mm-hmm. and over mm-hmm. me. Cause that mm. was, something, oh, you bet girl. It seemed like time. Yeah. And, right and on. now I feel, I feel that again. Like I, I feel his, his pleasure and his, abundance and I notice 
him noticing me. I mean, that was, yeah, that's a huge takeaway from the weekend. That's so many. But when you just talked about what does God see when he sees you, you know, what, or something like that. I'm sure it was more profound. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I was like, well, gosh, that was a broken image. You know, like I, I was a hustler. Like I, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it was, it's just shifted. And I'm so, so grateful. Hey guys, so we are excited. We're about to bring a bunch of leaders together in Dallas, Texas in September. You do not want to miss it. And I'm telling you, it is one of my favorite things If Gathering does. And I know some of you are thinking, I'm not a leader. I don't belong there. You do. Because no matter what, you are leading someone. And honestly, for me, those two days are this reminder that I'm part of a bigger story. So do not miss If Lead. It is happening in Dallas, Texas, September 26th and 27th. There are not a lot of tickets left. So go get some right now for you and a friend. Let's see what God does in all of our lives through those two days.